There was a church that had a fire in its main auditorium, commonly called the sanctuary. It was so severe that it was going to take at least six months to repair it. The church was located in a smaller city, and they could not find a new venue. Where were they going to meet? They looked and looked, and they couldn't find anything until finally they found that the downtown saloon was available on Sunday mornings. So with some reluctance, they made a contract for six months to rent that saloon for their church services. Well, there's a parrot that was in that saloon, and it so happened that the deacons came very early and cleaned out all the beer cans and bottles and cigarette butts, and the parrot says, Squawk, new cleaning crew, new cleaning crew. Then the praise team came, and they began to rehearse and sing. They said, Squawk, new musicians new musicians. Then the pastor came. He told them where to put the chairs and the, the lectern and all this sort of thing. And, and the parents said, squawk, new management, new management. And then the people began to come in. And the parents said, same old crowd, same old crowd. <laughs> Doesn't have a thing to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, this first one is this. Why should people gather together to pray rather than just praying in their own prayer closets? Why is it that united corporate prayer throughout history has preceded revivals? Well, the first thing I want to say is I don't think that corporate prayer is more powerful than individual prayer. You often hear it said, well, you get a group of people together, it's more powerful than one person. Well, James chapter 5 kind of puts the light of that. Remember, Elijah was a man like we are, and he prayed that it might not rain for three and a half years, and it didn't rain. He prayed again, and the heavens poured forth rain and brought forth crops. So one man doing that is pretty, pretty powerful. I don't think it's saying that corporate prayer is more uh, powerful than individual prayer. Individual prayer is powerful. The, the prayer of a righteous man avails much in his working. Um, I'll talk about Second Chronicles 7.14 in a minute. If my people are called by my name, will repent, and so on. We will humble themselves and repent. What are the benefits of corporate prayer? I see two. First of all, it's mutual fellowship, koinonia, sharing. The word koinonia means sharing, joint partnership. Now, if you will, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. This passage is commonly misunderstood. So if you will turn to Acts 2, 46 to 47. And this is what we read. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, Praising God and having faith. That's not what I wanted. Uh, I wanted another one. Oh, verse 42, my fault. And they are continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That's what I was after. I'm sorry. They are devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine or teaching and to fellowship. No and. After fellowship. Many people say they devoted themselves to four things. That is... Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. There are only two things here. 
First of all, apostles' teaching, doctrine. The second is fellowship. And the other two words are appositional. They explain what the fellowship was. The fellowship was breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, breaking of bread obviously means eating together. And probably in those first services, they ate together, meals together, and then at the conclusion, they have the Lord's table. It was quite common. So they fellowshiped around eating. There's something about putting your feet under the same table. That there's a fellowship you can have like no other way, and especially when you observe the Lord's table together. And then to prayer. Prayer is a marvelous, wonderful way of having fellowship. You share your lives. Uh, in Galatians 6, 2, Paul says, bear one another's burdens. Now, you can do that in many ways. It might be in finances. It might be in having some job done that needs help. But it especially is seen in prayer. You bear one another's burdens in prayer. Now, you have to be careful. The reason I say that is there are some people that look at prayer lists as a gossip session, as a gossip source. That's not what, you have to be very careful in sharing your needs. There has to be a sense of confidentiality that if you share something, it's not going to be gossiped about. Sometimes you just have to take the risk and do it. But there's something about sharing your heart and sharing your burdens together that just ties it together. So I think the first reason why corporate prayer is so necessary is just to show our fellowship. I think the second thing is very close to that is to show unity. When a church comes together and prays together, it shows a oneness in that group of people. So I think those are the two major things. Well, what about Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14? A passage you all know. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent in prayer, they'll heal their land and so on. Now, first of all, that's for Israel. That's not talking the United States. We are not God's chosen nation. That's talking about Israel. However, I do think this gives a, a description of what revival is all about. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent and pray, that's revival. And I think that relates to us as a people, that if we become like Israel is supposed to be in Second Chronicles 7, 14, that it describes revival. It's not saying it's more powerful prayer. It's just saying this is what turns a whole group of people around. So I take it that that's looking basically at, uh, at an explanation of what uh, uh, revival is about. Next question. <clears throat> in James... The sick are instructed to ask the elders to lay hands on them and pray for healing. Do we practice this? Yes, we do. Last Tuesday morning was our elders' meeting, and there was brought into the meeting, very early in the meeting, a young lady that's having some physical problems, severe, and we prayed over her as a, as a, as a board of elders. Now, that's not normal. That's the first time I remember doing it at an elders' meeting. But we do this regularly, uh, quite often, I should say. Sometimes it's after the Sunday morning service, and we'll meet the front of the church and gather around somebody that's made requests for this. Sometimes it's between the services in the Charlton Hyatt's office. 
But yes, we do this. And so if you have some request, make it known to Charlton or to somebody on the church staff, and it will be arranged. I think that's the only thing I need to have on that one. Um, Why does the tax collector in Luke 18 say, God be merciful to me, the sinner? I've always thought that it read a sinner, but recently, recently realized it says the sinner. That's a slight difference, but I think it is probably an important difference. Uh, you have to be careful on that. In Greek, there's what is known as the generic use of the article. For instance, in Matthew 8.20, it says, Foxes have holes, birds have nests. But what it really says in the Greek is, The foxes have holes, and the birds. It's just looking at a group. So he may be just be looking on himself as being in the group of sinners. God be merciful to me. A sinner just like everybody else. However, it may have some point in this particular parable because in Luke 18, the Lord is contrasting this publican, this tax collector, with this self-righteous Pharisee who is praying to himself or by himself. And he, he compares himself with this publican. I'm, I think I'm not like other people and so on. And I think it may be here in this case that this tax collector sees himself alone before God, as we should see ourselves, nobody else. We should see ourselves alone before God and then recognize I'm that sinner before God. That's what I really think it's talking about. That's possible. It could be generic. It could be more, more probable. I take it as I see myself as the sinner in this universe. I was also reading in Joel about how God will make up to the people the years the locusts have eaten. I know every word is inspired in the Bible. So why does Joel go on and on about the locusts? saying the swarming, the creeping, the stripping, and the gnawing locusts. Why not just call them locusts? I know there's a reason he goes into such detail. Can you help me as to why he says all these things about them? I think he's doing this to show the total, total devastation that's going to come on Israel. Joel uses the, the armies of these locusts to describe what is going to happen to Israel in judgment. I think it's just there to show total completeness. One, crop, one group of locusts after another. <clears throat> now this is a hard one. Often we read about aspects of the land in Scripture. For some examples, the land is to have a rest every seven years, every 49 years. There's, of course, the promised land. A family's heritage of land is to stay within the family. We are to be stewards of the land. There are certainly more aspects for consideration. And God, on occasion, judges people for how they handle, quote, the land, unquote. Of course, it is a subject we read about in the news now with the establishment of Israel in their original land, settlements they have started, and additional land they have as a result of failed wars from surrounding nations. They mean that the surrounding nations failed, not that Israel failed. Every war that Israel has been in so far, they've been successful. Can you speak to this broad subject, please, so we can understand more of the context 
we'll read passages on the various aspects. I did not realize the enormity of this subject. It's huge. A person could easily write a doctor's dissertation on the subject of the land in the Old Testament. I'd like to look at at it under two aspects. First of all, the land that is promised to Israel. You read in Genesis chapter 12, 13, 15, 17, and so on, that the land, the land of Canaan, is promised specifically to Abraham and his seed, to Isaac and his seed, and to Jacob and his seed. Not just the seed, but to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That land is to be given to those people and the heirs of that land, the people of Israel, who are believers. Now, that's important because it it becomes a, a transparent argument for the resurrection. It's very difficult to prove the resurrection from the Pentateuch. The Sadducees put a particular emphasis on the first five books of the Bible. How do you prove the resurrection from the, the, the Pentateuch? Well, in Genesis 13, 15, and so on, God says to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give the land to you. <laughs> well, the only land that Jacob had, that Abraham had, was a burial plot. The same thing with Isaac. Jacob had two plots of land, one that he bought at Shechem, in the middle of northern Israel, and also uh, the burial plot. But that's all they ever had. For them to inherit the land, they've got to be resurrected. So it becomes very important in the subject of the resurrection of, 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 the, of, the, of the people of God. The second thing I want you to notice is the land is the Lord's. I want you to turn, if you will, to a very important passage to Leviticus chapter 26. I was really impressed about how much about the land is given in, in Leviticus. The land is over and over again in, in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word is Eretz. And Eretz, uh, it, it looks at, it just means the land. And you look it up, it occurs hundreds of times. But I'd like to look at, if you will, at Luke. At Luke, what do I mean? At, uh, I want to look at here, just, uh, Leviticus 25. Leviticus chapter 25. And notice, if you will, very interesting, verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you, and he's talking about Israel, you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So the land, that promised land, is the Lord's. The land does not belong to Israel. It belongs to the Lord. And the Israelites are simply using that land. They're sojourners. They're inhabitants in that land. It is very important to remember that that land is the Lord's. It's not Israel's. I have a book in my library. Who owns the land? Whose land is, does it, owns it? And basically it's talking about the Palestinians versus Jews. Well, the Lord owns the land. Secondly, that land is to be a means of teaching them to help the poor. We're in Leviticus. Turn back to chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19. What a lesson. Leviticus 19, and if you will, verses 9 and 10. Now, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, 
nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I'm the Lord, your God. So the land was to be a means of teaching generosity, of just teaching how to take care of the poor. If you will, you may want to write down here, chapter 23, verse 22, it says the same thing. Leviticus 23 to 22. The next thing I learn about the land is there to teach patience and worship. To teach patience and worship. We're in Leviticus 19. Now, if you will, look at verses 23 to 25. And when you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. you shall, it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. And in the fifth year, you are to eat the fruit that its yield may increase for you. May increase for you. I am the Lord your God. And once again, notice you can't eat it for the first four years. And the fourth year was to, well, you couldn't eat it for three years. Then for the fourth year, you're to reap it and it to be first fruits to the Lord. You couldn't even eat it then. It's to be for worship. The first fruits are for the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but it seems like the first fruits are always the best. Have you ever noticed that? The first fruits are so good. But you give it to the Lord, and you had to wait till the fifth year before you could eat that fruit. What does that teach? Patience. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait on the Lord for his provision. And it teaches worship. That fourth year, it goes to the Lord. There's another thing about the land. I, teach, I, I think that it teaches faith. It teaches faith. You're in Leviticus. Turn out to chapter 25. Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 4. But during the seventh year, the land shall have a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. Now, that would take faith to go a whole year without reaping the crop. You're simply cast on the Lord to see if he will provide for that year. In fact, the passage goes on to say that he'll provide for the, for, for the year. In fact, he'll give two years, at least two years crop for your three years crop, I should say, for you to take for, for those years. It teaches faith. I don't, it says the land shall have rest. I have some questions about that. What does that mean? I really don't think it means the land is going to be um, re-energized. Um, we know about crop rotations today. Today, if a farmer plants uh, corn, and he has two or three years of corn, the next year he'll plant soybeans because soybeans are a legume. They put uh, nitrogen, it puts nitrogen into the soil. Um, or he may put it into alfalfa or clover. Those are legumes as well. Um, my wife's brother-in-law is a farmer. He's way past retirement age. He's finally, finally coming to the conclusion that maybe he better stop farming. Uh, he's having some health problems. Not major, but he's having some health problems. And uh, so I said, Paul, why don't, you just, uh, why don't you just rent out your land? You could do well just renting your land. And he says, well, I built the soil up so well 
I'm afraid that a, a renter will come in and just ruin the soil. So it, it can be taken care of that way, but I'm not sure that that's the reason for rest. It's just maybe just to teach faith. It really becomes important on the, on the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, the land went back to its original owners. In fact, if you bought land, you were just using it figuratively, and the land only had a few years left before it had to go back to the owner, you were given a lower price. If you had many years, you paid a higher price. So, uh, it, it, but in the 49th and 50th year, you had two years without any crops. Now, that would take faith. I don't believe the Jews ever did that. But the 49th and 50th year would teach faith. I think there's still another reason, and that is to display God's rewards. A reward for righteousness. Turn to chapter 26. Chapter 26. Um, chapter 26. I'd like to start, if I may. Where is chapter 26 here? Chapter 26. 25, 26. Okay. Verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments so as to carry them out, then I will give you rains in their season. And you take that all the way down to verse 13. As God will reward them for righteous living. But it also teaches punishment. You read chapter 26, verses 32 to 35, you don't obey me, I withhold the crops. Even see that in Malachi chapter 3, where you have tithing. If you tithe, then I'll give you crops you won't be able to store. It'll be so abundant if you obey me. So you find that there's reward for righteousness, and there's punishment for disobedience. There are many, many things that are taught about the land for Israel. But what about us? The vast, vast majority in this class are Gentiles. What about us? Well, turn back to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. And we find that um, Pharaoh's going to learn a lesson. Exodus 9 and verse 29. Exodus 9, verse 29. This is spoken to Pharaoh. Moses said to him, As soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there shall be hail no longer, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Not just the promised land. The earth is the Lord's. You may want to jot down, if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 10, 14 that we as Gentiles need to recognize that everything is under God's sovereignty. The earth, the skies, the heavens, everything is under God's sovereignty. You may also want to put here, if you will, um, Job 41, verse 11. And then, interestingly, New Testament. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. There's so much on this subject, I was just boggled by it. 1 Corinthians 10.16. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. By the way, we had it also in one of the testimonies this morning in Acts 17. But 1 Corinthians 10. And notice what it says here. 1 Corinthians 10.26. In 26, we read... Um, 
Let, I'm reading verse 24, let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the market, in the meat market, without asking questions. For conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, which gives liberty for foods. If the earth is the Lord's, then you, if you, in fact, Paul says in First Timothy, if you can give thanks for it, eat it. <laughs> I get a kick out of that because there's some things I, I could not give thanks for to eat. But if you can give thanks for it, eat it. All the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains. Many, many passages. Put here as well, Genesis 1.28, that the whole world is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's. I, I, I just scratched the surface on this question. There's much, much more to it. Uh, I'd like to see somebody write a dissertation on that subject, the subject of the land in the Old Testament. <laughs> this is a funny one. If a lost person is before the throne, how will they defend themselves if their brain has turned to dust in the grave and their spirit is standing before the throne without a memory or a brain? If everything is made new again, how will the lost be able to respond to questions? And then at the end, he writes, um, um, his wife says, uh, okay, this is a deep theological question about which my wife says, I'm nuts. <laughs> I got a kick out of that one. I think that your brain, or I should say your memory, your brain is part of your soul. It's immaterial. Your soul and your spirit, when you die, go to be with the Lord. Your body does not, but your soul and spirit do. Uh, we know that very clearly from, from uh, Luke 16. We have the wonderful story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the Lazarus in Hades, excuse me, the rich man in Hades, remembers who Lazarus is. He sees Lazarus. And so he asks Abraham to send Lazarus and so on. He remembers that he has five brothers still on this earth. So our memories go with us when we die. Our brain, as true, turns to dust, but our memories are still part of our immaterial substance, our soul, and I take it that our soul goes to be with the Lord. Dr. Swindoll preached a sermon, when people die, what happens? Almost, um, almost years ago, um, few questions. Uh, one, Luke 16, 19 to 31, can soul and spirit feel any physical pain as the rich man did? Only a resurrected body, along with his jointed soul and spirit, can feel physical pain. First uh, Thessalonians 4, 17, 2 Corinthians 5, 10, believers who are still living at that time are taken out, taken to the air and appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Is this location the same as the third heaven? If so, if not, uh, why two separate locations for believers? Well, first of all, that Luke 16 passage about the rich man and Lazarus is very important. You hear very little about this subject. In fact, it was years after I was at seminary before I ever heard about it. I believe that there is an intermediate body that is given to you between your, between your death and your resurrection. And the main passage to support that is Luke 16. In Luke 16, you find that the rich man is in torment. And he says, send Lazarus 
that I may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in torment in these flames. And Lazarus is in the bosom of Abraham. Now that expression, in the bosom of, looks at a banquet. When you ate at a banquet, you reclined. To be at the bosom meant you're right in front of the person reclined. Then the person that would be in the bosom would have a place of uh, emphasis or prominence. And here is this no good tramp, this beggar, invalid, Lazarus, is in Abraham's bosom, indicating again physical conditions. So there's an intermediate body that is given to you. Even though it's an intermediate body, Second Corinthians calls you as being naked, that you don't have your resurrected body yet. But it's just an intermediate body given to you between your death and resurrection. I think that's what it's talking about. Where does the marriage of the Lamb in Revelation 19.7 take place? It takes place on this earth during the millennium. It is the millennium. You find that the kingdom, the coming kingdom, is often described as a banquet. Over and over, it's a banquet. And interestingly, the first miracle that Christ performed is at Cana of Galilee at a wedding banquet. Why is that his first miracle? Well, the wedding banquet had gone south. They had uh, run out of wine. And this first miracle of Christ is to show that he is the Messiah who brings the kingdom. It's full of figurative language. It's very profound. But this is the first miracle to indicate that Jesus is the Messiah who brings about the coming kingdom. And it's described as a marriage festival. So it is that on this earth, we're going to have the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb. When it says marriage, it means the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this next one is very difficult. You're going to have to follow this one very, very carefully. I heard a 75 days event situated between the second coming of Christ and the millennium. Is it correct? And during that event, Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 would take place. What others occur? Very, very interesting. So if you will, turn with me now to Daniel. This is going to be hard, so follow along very carefully. The book of Daniel, chapter 12. Ezekiel, Daniel. The last chapter of the book. Daniel, chapter 12. Now, if you will, verses 11 and 12. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. Now, what in the world is that talking about? Now, follow me very, very carefully. Are you with me? The tribulation is seven years long. The Antichrist will make a, tr a treaty with Israel for seven years for protecting Israel. After, in the middle of that seven-year period, after three and a half years, the Antichrist is going to break the covenant. And he's going to, he's going to uh, set himself up as God in the middle of the tribulation. Now, interestingly, the... Bible looks on this as being 42 months. 
The 42 months are measured in terms of 30-day months. You measure, you multiply 42 times 30, and you get 1,260 days. Revelation chapter 12 says exactly that, that the last half of the tribulation is going to be 1,260 days. So from the setting up of the Antichrist to the end of the tribulation when Christ comes to set himself up as God is 1,260 days. But here you have 1,290 days. That's 30 days more. Then he says 1,335 days. That's 75 days more. What are those two periods looking at? We cannot say dogmatically. We can only speculate. But probably what it means is that, first of all, Christ is going to return, and there's going to be a judgment of the Jews and of the Gentiles in that order. First of all, a judgment of the Jews in Ezekiel chapter 20, then a judgment of the Gentiles in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. So they have a judgment, and that may be the first 30 days. Then it will take probably 75 days to set up the kingdom. Everything, everything organized, after all. He's going to have people in certain places of position. And it may take something like two and a half months to get that done. So there is there's a period of 75 days, and we can only speculate about what that time is. But that probably is what it is. Another interesting one. We had a bunch of interesting ones. This is written uh, way back in the beginning of October. Yom Kippur is coming up on the 11th, which causes me to wonder why we do not observe it and other Old Testament Hebrew festivals. Referring to Yom Kippur, it seems to be Jesus was the ultimate sacrificial sacrament. Now, that's a good question. Why don't we observe these feasts? Because as we saw in the study of, Ezek- of um, Colossians, These feasts are simply a shadow of what is to come. It's not fulfillment. They are simply pictures of what is to come. And we went through, remember, the seven festivals. Four of them have been fulfilled. Three are yet to be fulfilled. That's future. So we don't observe them because uh, that's still in the future. Now, this is another hard one. What are the Urim and Thummim? Joseph Smith claimed to have used it or them when he transcribed the Book of Mormon, along with several other methods. He represented it or them as a pair of spectacles. Now, this is another huge subject, the Urim and Thummim. So if you will, turn to Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Genesis, Exodus 28. When the law is being given, and we have a description of the tabernacle, the priestly garments, we read this in Exodus 28. Exodus 28 and verse 30. Exodus 28, verse 30. I'll get it here just a second. Exodus 28 and verse 30. Here's what we read. And you shall put in, well, let's start back at verse uh, 29. And Aaron shall carry the names of the sons of Israel 
in the breastpiece of the judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And you should put in the breastpiece of the judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and it should be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. And Aaron uh, shall carry the judgment of, and so on. Now, the word Urim and Thummim, those two words are plural. They may be plurals of majesty. In Hebrew, when you want to magnify something being great, you put it in the plural. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, that means the heaven. It's just plural to show how great it is. Elohim is plural to indicate how great God is. It may be that these are plural just to show how great they are. Urim and Thummim. It seems that they mean light and perfection, or lights and perfection, but if you take them as being pearls of majesty, it would be light and perfection. They were evidently used to discerning, uh, to, for discerning what God's judgment is. What was, what, was his, what was his decision? If you will, I'll turn to the numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 27. I hate to work you this hard this morning with all these references, but that's necessary when you have questions and discussion. Numbers chapter 27. Numbers 27 and verse 21. And this is what we read. Moreover, he shall stand, be, this is talking about the high priest. Moreover, he shall stand before Eliezer, the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. Urim includes, of course, Thumim. They were used for discerning what was yes and what was no, what was right. Uh, if you want another, some other references, we'll say that for your future study. But 1 Samuel 28, verse 6. And then also 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 7 to 8. That's 30, verses 7 to 8. Then a very interesting one, Ezra. Chapter 2, verse 63. There were priests who returned from the captivity, and they claimed to be descendants of, or Levites and priests, who claimed to be descendants of Aaron and Levi. But they had no genealogy to show it. And so they said, we must wait to discern, find out what the Urim and Thummim tell us. Uh, it's, It's God giving his judgment. In fact, in 1 Samuel 28, 6, it says, God refused to talk to Saul, either by a prophet or the Urim or Themim or by dreams. God just refused to talk to Saul. Uh, He did not give any information. But in chapter 30, verses 78, David inquires, should he go up to, to try to fight some group of people or not? Now, we don't know how this worked. What are the Urim and Thummim? It may be that there are two stones, they were, they were put into a cup and shaken, and which one came out first indicated yes or no. That's a common theory. We don't know. It would be the binary theory, the same thing that we have in our computers, yes or no, yes or no. And so it would be that they would determine God's will by that. That's all I know about it. It's very, very difficult. Um, we have one more. Time for one more. Now I want you to turn to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. This is a good one for our conclusion. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. We're going to look at the whole psalm very quickly. Psalm 91. 
Psalm 91. Uh, you know this one. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, Almighty and so on. Then I want to drop down to verse 9. You have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. Nor evil, no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now here is the question. The author seems to be speaking of the righteous man or the believer, at least in verses 1 to 10. Very frankly, I think he's talking about the righteous believer through the whole chapter. He's talking about a righteous man. In verses 11 to 13, it seems that the verses may also address the righteous, but yet Satan uses verse 11a and 12 to tempt Christ. Remember when Satan says, catch yourself from the side of the temple and he'll bear you up. And he quotes this. If, if verses 11 to 13 are describing a righteous man, is this meant by Satan as a slight to Christ? Does Satan reveal that he acknowledges then that verse 11 to 13 are all specific to Christ? Now, I think what you have here is I think this chapter all the way through describes God's watching over a righteous person. This is a promise to the righteous person in the Old Testament. Now, follow me carefully. Christ is often seen as an ideal. He is seen, for instance, as Israel, the ideal Israel in Matthew chapter 2 when he says, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, that's a quotation right out of Hosea 11.1. In Hosea 11.1, it says, Israel is my firstborn. Out of Egypt have I called my son. That's talking about Israel. Christ is the genuine Israel. In chapter 15 of John, he says, I am the vine. Now, he doesn't say that. I'm the genuine vine. What does he say genuine, the real vine? Because in Psalm 80, God talks about Israel being the vine. He is the genuine, the real Israel. He's the ideal. Now, he's the ideal righteous person. And that's what you have in this passage. Satan recognizes that Jesus is the ideal righteous person. And therefore, he can quote that as referring to Christ. It's true of all of us. God watches over us, but especially over Christ. Which leads me to the conclusion for the whole day. When you look at these passages, you realize how wonderful the scriptures are. And they all speak of Christ. As we've seen in the book of Colossians, the issue is who is Christ? Who is Christ? What has he done? What is he doing now? And what will he do? The whole issue is Christ. So the issue in each person's life, in this this room this morning, each person has a responsibility to Jesus Christ. Who is he? Who is in your life? Is he your savior? Have you trusted in him to make him your own individual personal savior? Do you know him? And this is life eternal, that people may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do you know Christ? I pray that you do. 
And if you know Christ, is he the Lord of your life? Is he over all in your life? It should be Christ, Christ, Christ. Father God, we thank you for the wisdom of the scriptures, for all that the scriptures mean to us. And we pray that in your providence, Christ may be supreme in our hearts. May he have the preeminence in all things, including the Maranatha class, including each person in this class. May he be supreme. And for those who have never trusted Christ, may they come to know him. Give these people, these dear, dear, dear people, no rest till they find their rest in you. Watch over us this week. Make us to be a blessing to others. And watch over our nation, Father. Watch over us. May we do the things that please you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for your kind attendance. We'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing.